Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, it's me, Sam Baker. And before we go on with the show, I want to tell you about an exciting new initiative coming from The Shift. Many of you have asked how you can support the podcast further and get more Shift into the bargain. Well, now you have the opportunity to do just that by joining The Shift community. You can go to steady.media forward slash The Shift and become a member of The Shift. In return for supporting the podcast, you'll receive exclusive weekly newsletters, community membership and plenty of other perks aimed at bringing us all closer together. That's Steady. Dot media forward slash the shift. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no holds bar truth about being a woman post 40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster Sam Baker. Today's guest is the award-winning writer Kit DeWall. Until she was 21, Kit had never read a book voluntarily, but once she started, there was no stopping her. Kit started writing in her mid-40s and published her award-winning debut, My Name is Leon, at 56. Since then, she's used her success to work tirelessly to promote the voices of working-class writers. Now she's turned her attention to her own childhood. Her memoir, Without Warning and Only Sometimes, is the story of growing up in poverty, one of five children with a black father and Irish mother who brought them up Jehovah's Witness. What do you think about Meghan Markle? I was asked the other day. I haven't got an opinion on Meghan Markle. She's not the first woman that married a bloke and doesn't get on with her in-laws. That's <laughs> that's it. Kit joined me from quite possibly the most envy-inducing workroom I've ever ogled via Zoom to talk being single and reclaiming your own space at 60. We discussed race, class, privilege, the impact of a childhood spent not stepping on the cracks, and why she hates that fucking overused word resilience. Plus, the importance of tending the garden where you stand, why she's not interested in a man on the downward slide, being a Tuesday friend, and her exceedingly cool hair. Oh, thanks thanks so much for coming on. I just want to say, I lived on College Road in the mid-80s. No! Oh (laughs) my God! I couldn't believe it. I was looking on Google and I was reading without warning and only sometimes. And I was, I kept looking at Google Maps thinking, I'm sure I know that street that Kit lived on. And I couldn't find it because I got thrown by the golf course right up the other end of the road. Yeah. And then you said about the chip shop on College Road. (laughs) I just thought, I know that chip shop. Oh (laughs) my God, that is so weird. Which end of the road did you live? Do you know what? I think it was number 15. That end, down towards Sparkbrook. Yeah, yes. is it Sparkbrook or Spark Hill? Spark Hill. Spark Hill, yeah. Hill. yeah. Oh, my and God. And then you go left along Stratford Road, down yes. to the Indian restaurants. Yes. 
And I had, when I was 20, I had a really, really bad, you know, when you have a breakup haircut. Oh God, yes. I'll reinvent myself. Yeah. I've only done it the once. It was a big mistake. And um, my hair was probably grown longish. And I went down to, it was just a hairdresser on the other side of the road. So I just walked in and went chop it off. In Spark Hill. A hairdresser (laughs) in Spark Hill. I mean, that's the thing. Never go to a hairdresser in Spark Hill. Wow, what a nightmare. It was a disaster. So I had it cut to about here. And my hair is like, (laughs) it doesn't look like big because it's heavy because it's long. But when it's short, it's like, yeah, it's like having a triangle on my head. Terrible. I know because my hair, when it grows, uh, if I don't have it cut really well, I look like Margaret Thatcher. It goes sort of almost see-through, but high and not curly. There's no curl. It's just, it's revolting. It's funny. Every so often somebody really rude on social media will say, your hair's too long. You would look much younger with short hair. And I'm like, trust me, I know what I'd look like with short hair. I would look shit. I'm just not going there. Anyway, your hair's very cool. This is not what I meant to talk about, but since we're there, you've got very cool hair though. Do you know what? It's down to age and knowing what suits you. Because I've had some grotesque hairstyles in the past. And when my hair grows, I used to have it sort of this length a lot, but I've got a very high forehead. And I used to look like Max Wall. You know, Max Wall. Honestly. I'm sure you didn't. No, I I have looked bad in the past. So now I just know what I can get away with. Uh, I was really, when I, apart from the fact that I lived on College Road, I was really struck right at the very beginning. That's such a powerful opening chapter about skipping the cracks. Yes. I mean, skipping the cracks is a thing you do as a kid, but it's also so significant. That sense that you then, and it's a kind of a metaphor for life, yes. or it can be. Yes, absolutely. I know that I did it very deliberately thinking, well, You know, if something comes from below the earth, earthquakes or whatever, of course, the cracks will be the weakest part of the road and that will burst open and I'll die. Um, But also, of course, you carry that on then because that's almost a form of trauma where you're waiting for the bad thing and then you wait for the bad thing for the rest of your life, even though you say you don't believe it and it is all bullshit. You still have the scars or at least the stain. And then you're thinking, I'll avoid that, and I'll avoid that, and I'll avoid that. And it just becomes a way of living without you even knowing it, without you even mm-hmm. articulating what damage you've had and what damage you're going through. Yeah, it's it's like that. If I don't do that, and I don't do that, and I don't do that, then the chances of... But then you turn around and you're 40 and you haven't done anything. Yeah, you haven't done anything, or you've taken no risks, or all you've tried to do is avoid more pain and avoid more agony, and avoid situations that might challenge you because the challenge feels like too much. It's the problem I have with that fucking overused word, resilience. I absolutely Mm. hate it. You know, have those bad things happen to you. It'll make you resilient. Children in the care system, oh, don't worry, they're resilient. You know, people that, you know, suffer racism, don't worry, it builds resilience in children. Well, what it actually builds is not resilience. It builds a scar, just the way that you can burn a scar again and it doesn't hurt as much because it's scar tissue that doesn't mean you should have the scar in the first place just because you can cope with it I absolutely hate it when people talk about resilience especially in children because um I don't want to be resilient because of bad things that have happened to me I'd like to be resilient through information you know slightly tested of course everyone should be slightly tested so they can find out 
oh, this is how you do it, just like learning to walk as a baby. You fall down, you stand up. You fall down, you stand up until you can run. Um, and that's fine, but some of the damage that we inflict on one another and society inflicts on us in the name of resilience uh, and then just brush it away, throw it away, it drives me mad, it really does. Yeah, emotional scar tissue is a really good way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. And you don't want the scar. You know, you shouldn't say, oh, that's great, they've got all them scars so they won't feel anything. Don't have the scars in the first place. There's better ways of learning shit than to be damaged and damaged and damaged. It's also like, while you're busy getting resilient, what are other people doing? What are you not doing while you're getting resilient? Oh, my God, that's my, my literal refrain. You know, I'm spending my time learning to cope with shit. I'm taking my energy trying to be resilient. You, on the other hand, who's not being scarred, who's not being damaged, you will go on and and spend all that emotional energy, not self-protecting, but having a great life or having adventures or learning to bungee jump, other ways of being resilient, other ways of being tested that are much more positive, much more nurturing. It's not to say that we should wrap one another in cotton wool or wrap our children in cotton wool, but there are really healthy ways of helping people come to knowledge and avoid things and, you know, suffer somewhat and get over it. You could say it would be like a breakup. You know, everyone should have their heart broken once. For a start, you won't understand any pop songs if you don't have your heart broken. <laughs> so at least have your heart, your heart broken at least once. Would you want that to be because of coercive control, domestic violence? You know, there's ways to have your, your heart broken, a really healthy ways to have your heart broken. I went out with him or I lived with that guy or my husband got divorced. You know, after a period of being horrible to one another, we found a way through it and I'm healed. That's fine. But there are many ways, obviously, of having a breakup that are terrible for people and damage, you know, without any hope of being uh, healed from it. So it's very like, I think resilience is like that. There's ways of being stronger and finding the strength without that kind of ultimate damage. It's just like a way of people who haven't had to put up with that crap going, oh, it's not that bad, really. Absolutely. Or even a benefit. The benefit, it's good for you. It's really good for you. What would you be like if you never had this? And you're like, do you know what? I'd be okay. I'd be okay (laughs) without the damage. I'd be okay without the scar tissue. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'd be able to sleep or I wouldn't have nightmares or whatever. Yes, exactly. And, you know, of course, one of the things that you do have if you've been damaged, I've heard Emma Thompson say something recently in an interview and she said, I don't think I could get on with someone who wasn't a bit damaged or something. And I thought, yeah, I get it. I completely get that. You do meet the smogs who sailed through this life, who then go and have everything that they want and desire without being tested. And that's also not great. People who lack empathy for anyone else's experience in life because they haven't had it happen to them personally. And I know people like that. I mean, you've only got to live in a middle-class spa town like Leamington Spa, (laughs) and you will come across people whose biggest (laughs) – I'll give you an example. I was in a cafe 
and Levington is really a very pretty, beautiful town where people want to come and live, like Cheltenham, like Harrogate, anyway. Yeah, like it's lovely, isn't it? And um, I was queuing up in this very shishi cafe where I pretentiously get my coffee and cake. There was a woman sitting next to me with her friend, about 35, I suppose, and she looked really upset. So obviously I'm trying to hear what they're talking about. She said, I just don't know what to do. I mean, do I need an Argo if I've got under 14? And I was like, Sorry. you can't be serious. You, that cannot be the biggest problem oh in your life. She God. was really upset. And her friend was patting her back and they were talking about it like it was, where can I get a new kidney from? And I was just absolutely, I, I mean, obviously it's a big deal to her. She's got her lovely kitchen. She doesn't know whether to have an Arga and underfloor eating or one of the other. And I just, I thought it's just, you know, what can you say? It's a big problem for her. She's genuinely upset. Maybe it's come at the end of 10 years of IVF. Who knows? But my God, I did want to say catch yourself on love that's really not a problem it's not even a first world problem is it I mean that's just like beyond (laughs) exactly oh god this is like the most ludicrous thing really but can you give us just a tiny whistle stop tour of your childhood yes um so my parents got together in 1957 Uh, my mother's Irish immigrant my father is from the Caribbean my father had a son from a previous relationship unbeknown to us completely but he left the West Indies with a baby and came to England then met my mother who wore him down with her affection until she got pregnant with my sister then me then another girl then a boy then a girl there were five of us born before 1967 so very very close in age we had a bizarre bohemian childhood my mother was very strange woman um she was brought up as an irish catholic she then became a jehovah's witness when i was six she's probably bipolar thinking about Mm. some of her reads like she is yes some of her behavior was extreme and she had extremes of, of highs and lows once she became a jehovah's witness our life became one of uh, you know religious oppression basically well religious oppression for my mother my father was like you know i'm living somewhere else in his head he was back in the west indies waiting to go back to the west indies that was home that was the focus of his life he saved all his money and was building a house in the west indies and furnishing a house in the west indies so we were brought up as very poor very very poor because my father had spent no money on us whatsoever so my mother had to clean. Um, she was an auxiliary nurse. She cleaned the laundrette. She cleaned people's houses. She worked in a supermarket. She was a childminder. She had all these bits and pieces of what people would call a portfolio career. She would never have used that <laughs> word. <laughs> mm, yeah. She had these bits and pieces of jobs that brought in bits and pieces of money, like running a catalogue. And she clothed us and fed us as best as she could, which was appallingly badly because there were five of us. We were also really intelligent. And that's a freak of DNA between my parents because neither of them were. They were almost willfully ignorant about the world. They didn't want to know. They didn't want to know about politics. They didn't want to know about anything. They would never, ever, ever um, help you with your homework, for example, but they'd expect you to do it. Not unusual at the time, I would I would say. Mm. Um, then when I was 16, 
and no longer wanted to be a Jehovah's Witness. Well, if you didn't want to be a Jehovah's Witness, you had to leave. You just had to leave home. So I left home at 16. Sex, drugs and rock and roll ensued. Great time. Absolutely great. Just getting stoned, having boyfriends, going to gigs. It was great till it wasn't. And it was really horrible when it wasn't. It was some bad trips and some bad times and some brushes with breakdowns. And I had a very bad episode. I went home to live for, um, I think I was there for maybe two years. And during that time, I got a job with the Crown Prosecution Service and found books. I found books and I would honestly say they, as far as my mental health went, they helped me sleep. They showed me different worlds. They helped helped me get out of my own head, lived in my own head, always have lived in my own head. And this was the first time I was out of my head and into someone else's. And I loved it. I don't think I've ever stopped reading since. I was 21 at the time. What was the impact? Because you had this classic Irish granny. And I know this is a stereotype, but it's a stereotype (laughs) because everybody who's got an Irish Catholic granny knows it. The guilt and the shame in you, the know better than you ought to be and get back in your place and all of that. And then you had the black nana who, from little Kit's point of view, seems pretty brutal. But then when you start to look at it from her point of view, she's been like dragged over from St. Kit's to look after some other woman's kids. Yeah. And then just does chuck Jehovah's Witness in just for the hell of it. Yeah. I mean. Mad. I mean, mad. Fuck. Yeah. I mean. There was everywhere that you looked, there was madness. In my life, there was nothing, there was no concrete to stand on. There was nothing permanent. There was nothing assured, very little softness, except, I mean, my mother absolutely adored us, but she was also very ill. So we had affection between one of us. And, and, and there is absolutely no doubt that my relationship with my siblings saved my life. And they would say the same. We would look at each other when they were at their craziest, when my father was giving us a lecture on how evil and bad white people were, half white dad, by the way. But he'd give us these long speeches about the white man. And we'd be nudging each other, going, can you hear that God? Or, you know, what's I mean, you'd never let it show on your face, but no, you, I no. never internalised it. Not for one minute did I internalise his rants about racism. Then he'd go out, my mother would come in, because they didn't get on very well, so they were very rarely in the same place at the same time. So she would come in and she'd start talking about black people and black nurses and how bad they were. Black women are like this. And we'd be like, but mom, you're talking to black women. You, you are actually talking oh, to man. black women. But she never saw us as black women. We were just her children. And again, we'd be nudging each other thinking she's mad. So I think the presence of other people while that bizarre behavior is going on, other people who are going, oh, wow. How mad is that? That helps you not to internalise it. I think if I'd been an only child, I would have had many breakdowns. And we often say to one another, it is a miracle that none of us have been in a mental health institution. None of us are alcoholics. None of us abuse drugs. None of us have got a gambling addiction. None of us have ever been a sex worker. Some of those, not not that it's always damaging to be a, a sex worker, but some of those damaging self-harming behaviours that many people do that have come from a traumatic background. And I put that down to the fact that we were a tribe and it was like watching the telly. Watching these two was like, oh, my God, can you hear him? We didn't take it in. 
we've just let them get on with it, knowing that at 16, you're out of there. That's amazing that you, well, I guess it's because you had each other. Yes. But you can also come from, you know, I know people who come from big families with lots of siblings, and that's just another source of conflict. Yes. Yeah, I do know. And I, I think that is unusual because I've got friends who've got, um, you know, come from big families and there's real tension in that maybe one child was scapegoated. As in my family, I have, I would say my, my sister was scapegoated, but we all knew and we all protected her and we all loved her. So she might have had a bad time from my mother, but she never had it from us because we thought how wrong that was. You know, even when she died, we, we allowed or, or we encouraged that sister to organise the funeral because it was a way of reclaiming her relationship with my mother. So, yeah, we were definitely into protecting one another from both of them because it was the only way to survive. Fortunately, we all thought that. Thank God we all thought that. You had all those conflicting identities. Did you identify with any of them? Uh, with all of them. I think when you're mixed race, I mean, uh, this might not go for everybody, but for me, first of all, people think they're conflicting identities. They're not. People think that, you know, if you're mixed race and have all these other things, that's, you know, uh, a challenge. However, everyone has more than one identity. Every single person, you know, you're a mother, you're a sister, you're a parent. Let's say your grandmother was Irish or your mother was Irish or Welsh or a countess or you're a member of a bridge club, or you're a member of the gay community, or, or, or everyone, whether you're mixed race or not, everyone has lots of identities. They're just a bit more extreme in my case, because in a time when there were not many mixed race people at all in the country, we were mixed race, so we would regularly have people say, oh, your dad's black, you, and your mum's white. I mean, people used to say quite openly, neither fish nor fowl. So many times they'd say, oh, my God, and just think it was uh, an OK comment. Half breed, we were called many times. Um, so obviously the race, racism was strife, but racism was also strife against Irish people. So it's not mm -hmm. as though the white part got any kind of a free pass because there was the Irish racism, there was the black racism. And then we were Brummies. You know, we were English children that, that laughed at Morecambe and Wise and you know, get all the English jokes. And we also lived in a quite on the edge of a very middle-class area where there were huge uh, Victorian villas and, and mansions. And so the children that we went to school with were the children of lawyers and doctors, so quite upper middle class. And that was another identity that we had because we were, you know, clever English children. We were poor Irish children. We were odd black children that in the black community we were mixed race and that was also an unusual thing then we were jehovah's witnesses which sort of shat on everything that's <laughs> <laughs> like, just i mean that's just like it's just next level isn't it <laughs> it's like that's the thing that feels untenable all yeah. the other stuff is like creating difficulties that you could have lived without but that that was let's very just clear. like throw that in and just suck what little bit of joy there is yes. out of this it existence. is a joyless joyless religion so if there is celebration on the annual calendar we could not do it and it's not just we'd rather you didn't do it it was a sin you couldn't do it you know the the, the equivalent of excommunicated which is called disfellowshipping you could not have pancake day no no 
No, no, no pancake God, day. I hadn't even thought about that. So there would be no Guy Fawkes Day, no Halloween, no Christmas, no birthdays, no Mother's Day, no Father's Day, no Pancake Day, no St. Swithin's Day, say, where you couldn't mention the fact that it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 days. You just couldn't mention anything to do with the saints. So if Midsummer? Oh, God, no, that's pagan. Oh, God, yeah, sorry. That's what pagan. was I thinking? No, no. <laughs> Idiot. So if there is a celebratory aspect to any day of the year, you can guarantee that as children we could not mention it, let alone participate in it. You, you didn't mention it. We didn't mention the word Christmas in our house. You couldn't mention Christmas. My mum would cry. It was just Wednesday. December the 25th was Wednesday. Boxing Day was Thursday. You know, there was no Christmas tree. There was no extra food. There was no food anyway, but there was certainly no extra food. There was just the telly. The telly was on. You know, it's more telly, I suppose. No presents whatsoever, no tinsel, no crackers. Has it turned you into a massive celebrator? Yes. For my birthday, I have to say, slightly obsessed. My children, though, under no circumstances... Can they forget mom's birthday? I have to have a cake like an infant. I have to be the queen of the day. You know, it's mom's yeah, birthday, mom's birthday, mom's birthday, mom's birthday. Only a day, a Only, week, surely. Well, oh, I've had, I have, have had birthdays that have lasted a week. And I've insisted on seeing everybody and come down and kiss the hem of my garment. That kind of nonsense. For Christmas, I, I, I had to learn about Christmas. Of course, I didn't know anything about Christmas. So uh, obviously sex, drugs and rock and roll years, I, Christmas passed in a haze of ganja. It was like, I don't know, was it Christmas? However, once I got married and had children, I remember someone saying to me, yeah, and of course there'd be bread sauce. And I was like, what? Bread sauce? I've never heard of bread sauce. Oh, it's disgusting bread sauce. Like... Well, it looked like chicken vomit to me. I was just like, what the <laughs> fuck is that shit? Oh, no. But I thought, okay, I've got to make it, obviously, because... I didn't know. I didn't know about Christmas jumper. Never heard of a Christmas jumper that some people do. Box fees. There's loads of things I didn't know that you did. And, of course, once I found out about them, oh, yes, we will go over the top. My tree went up on the 1st of December. I collected antique baubles that cost an absolute fortune. I had hundreds of them. It was over the top. And the children would have presents that went on for weeks. Because it was, you know, it was me giving me Christmas. Mm. This was not their Christmas. They, they couldn't care less, really. They had the presents. But it was me. All the Christmases I'd never had had to come out somewhere. All the birthdays I'd never had. And any kind of celebration. Easter, you know, my children would have 20 Easter eggs each. Way over the top. Easter presents. My children had birthdays and half birthdays. <laughs> so they would have birthdays. Like Bethany, her birthday is on the 12th of January. So on the 12th of July, she has a half birthday. Everyone has a half birthday. Why stick to one? Oh, God, I'm coming around yours. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it it really is trying to self-nurture. That's all that's about. You know, that's about me saying to my six-year-old self, you can have presents. You can have this. It is okay. Let's celebrate. And, of course, you can never actually do that you can never reach back through time and make it okay you can only understand and say that was shit and I'm okay and it shouldn't have happened but I'm okay and that's basically what I do now I hardly have Christmas now I got it out of my system when I had children <laughs> what what happened at 21 that's a flicker it seemed like a big switch flicked at 21 yeah definitely through 
taking a lot of drugs. I had a very bad time. It was a combination of a lot of things. I believed when I was 16 and I left home that Armageddon would come and I was going to die. Even though I would have told you I didn't believe Armageddon was going to come, I did. And so I had to cram in. Once I left home, I had to cram every bit of badness in because Jesus Christ, I'm going to die. And if I'm going to die, I'm going to die for something. So what's that? I'll have that. I'll do that. I'll go there. I'll do that. I'll sleep with him. There's no holds barred because I'm going to die. And, you know, what is it? Hung for a sheep as a lamb. That was my attitude. And of course, you leave home at 16. By the time I was 21, I was fucked. I had done everything to the extreme. I was just really tired and I don't know fucked is the best way of putting it and I had just a a moment where I thought oh I'm mad I've got to that point now where I am mad they'll put me in a home I'd seen this happen to quite a few friends where they'd had a serious psychotic breakdown I thought here comes mine I could feel it on the horizon and I walked from where I lived to where my mom was at work at hospital at Dudley Road Hospital and just said to him I've gone mad you've got to help me and she, I mean, this is way outside of her experience. She didn't know anything about it, but she loved me. And my father loved me. And I went home and they asked me no questions. And they gave me food and made me get up and get a wash and sit down and watch the telly. I mean, that's their version of mm. nurture. And it worked. Um, but what really worked is I'd been to college and I'd, I'd got some typing qualifications and I got a job working for the Crown Prosecution Service and one of the prosecutors was just a lovely gentleman and I asked him for 10 books I just asked him for his top 10 books because I couldn't sleep and I couldn't sleep without drugs and and drink and I knew that was partly the source of my mental illness so um, he just gave me 10 books to read. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
they were terrible books now that I look back. You know, they were, they were just terrible. Very serious, worthy very, classics, really. And very military. You know, The Siege of Krishnapur. You don't read that book unless you have to. <laughs> Three Men in a Boat, The Riddle of the Sands, uh, The Red Badge of Courage. There, there's, there's four or five there that are completely, or, War and Peace, almost completely about war. But they weren't all like that. And anyway, I didn't care because I was immersed and I was reading about the battle and, and when he retreated four miles and then this happened and that's a squadron and that's a, you know, whatever. I just really got into them and lost myself, stopped shaking, was able to sleep. Sometimes I'd sleep till it was light. Many times I'd sleep till it was light. And my insomnia comes from those times. And then in there was Madame Bovary. And in that group of 10, there was Therese Racan. And I was like, oh, Right. And in there was Graham Greene, I think, or eventually there was Graham Greene. And I just thought, okay, I found something where I can lose myself, where I can not think about existential things that can bring me down to a farmhouse in Rouen in 1910. And this girl sitting and thinking about her future, I was like, yes, I'm there. I get it. And that was a massive switch in my life because I began to read like my life depended on it and probably my life did depend on it. And I found worlds and peace through books. Reading some interviews with you and reading the book, it kind of struck me that there are like some shifts, if you like. There's the one at 21 where you, you know, you discover books. And actually I was also, I'm going to do a bit of a side swerve. I was really interested in the typing because I learned to type at about 18. I, mean, I went to university, but I learned to type in the holidays and that's how I got my job. Yeah. And you got your job because you could type. Yes. And that's just not a thing anymore for kids. No, it's not a thing anymore. What it speaks to is what's open to you as a woman. Certainly from my perspective, as a working class, immigrant class, I mean, we weren't even working class. We were an immigrant class family. Um, and what was open to me, a great example would be that when we had our careers day at school, I went to a grammar school, a very good grammar school. And my friend goes in front of me and she has her interview with the headmistress who tells her what she's going to do. She suggested my friend goes to university. She was really good at English, go to university. I go in and she said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be an English teacher. And she said, hmm. If I were you, I'd go and get some qualifications, get something under your belt, learn to type before you go and become an English teacher. Of course, my friend, who's at least five or six places behind me in English, was told to go and do something. Now, that's both both racism and classism at work there. But for many girls of my uh, class generation, it, yeah, you, you learn to type because you could get you could walk into a job. Now I don't know what that is. What is it that you can do now where you can walk into a job? Maybe be in, in a call centre or something? Is there any skill you can get now where you can walk into a job? Probably not. I can't think of an equivalent and I know, you know, I know that I got my job because I could type. Yes, absolutely. And type fast, you know, and type still fast. Yes. do you still touch type? Yes, I can't look yeah. at my hands. If I no, look at my not. hands, I can't I can't do it. It all goes tits yes. up, doesn't it, if you start yes. looking at your hands? Absolutely. And very occasionally I still do shorthand. If I'm trying oh to capture something that someone said, I, I will write it in, in shorthand. But that's less so now. Right, to go back to your shift, sorry, I just suddenly thought yes. about the typing. The typewriter over your shoulder reminded me. Um, so at 21, you did kind of like two decades of doing what you should do, which is yes. how I've heard you yes. put it. 
And then you started writing in your 40s and then Leon. Yes. In your mid-50s. What made you stop doing what you should do? Um, So doing what I should do, I have to say, is what I also wanted to do. I loved, um, can't say I love being a mother now. That sounds really bizarre, but I love my children. Did I like being a mother? No. I did, you know, that fucking bring cakes to school bollocks. I hate it. Oh, tomorrow they need to bring an egg box. Who's got an egg box hanging around? And I well, also know. Yeah. Or tomorrow they need to bring in a toilet roll and a, I don't know, a Lego Star Wars thing. Or tomorrow a character. I hate that. Look, send your kids to school. Let them learn or not, wear the things or not. But that fascism, the school playground fascism, the cliques, oh, hated that. I loved my children. And I was just... I mean, you know, I was a bit of a bad mum, let's call it bad mum, you know, swear. <laughs> Rebel mum. <laughs> yeah. Rebel mum. And, you know, when it was, oh, we're all making cakes for the school fair, well, I'm getting mine from Marks and Spencers. That's the way that works. I'm not doing it. I wouldn't do it. You know, children going as a school character. Do you want to go as a school character, Luke? No, I don't. Okay, you don't go as one. You know, I just never wouldn't play the game, wouldn't play the game. So, I love doing that. I love being with my children and having fun with my children. But also, um, you know, increasingly they get older, they need you less. Uh, They think they need you less. Obviously, they want to be there, but you sort of had less influence over them. And Luke was very, uh, I adopted Luke when I was 41, and he was very ill um, as a baby. And it was impossible for me to work the way I had done before. I was on the adoption panel. I was a magistrate. I was doing lots of other things that I wanted to do. But, you know, there was just no way I was going to be able to do that and look after Luke. So by the time I was 45, I was not working. I plumped the cushions to death. I'd found a Farrenborough paint chart, and most of the house was in Farrenborough, and I'd replaced the railings at the front of the Victorian house. Oh, my God, I was bored. I had a sort of a day, maybe a day, as a mother and toddler group. My God, that's another level of fascism right there. Couldn't stand it Um, with all the, you know, oh, isn't yours doing that? Yeah, no, he's not doing that. It was just terrible. Anyway, I thought, oh, I'll write a book and I'll be so great. I've read hundreds of books. It'll be really easy for me because I was always good at English. And... um, I'll send it to Penguin. They're the only publishers I've ever heard of. They'll sort of put a wrapper on it and it'll be in Waterstones, let's say six months' time. You know, that's literally what I thought. What I couldn't believe is that it was so hard. I was shocked. I was just like, hang on a minute. Why can't I get the beautiful pictures in my head onto the page? And I knew I couldn't and I wasn't very good. But I kept at it, and it's really funny. I can remember a particular day when I just thought, I have to do this now. It had bitten really deep. I, I never expected it. I just thought it would be something I'd try, and then if I couldn't do it, it would, I'd put it down. And I found that it, it was becoming my life, and I, I just kept trying. And I kept working on the craft, and I kept reading and te- interrogating the books that I loved. Um, I did an MA in creative writing, which wasn't very good but I met a lot of really good writers and and had a great time there with them. I just kept writing because it was everything to me by that point. So did the MA give you 
the kind of access, that kind of privilege that you don't have. Yeah. Because you know, when we talk about class in particular, everybody that just all distills down to money. Yeah. Oh well, and it's not. You know, yes, that's an element of it, but there's so much else, isn't there? You know, like yeah. health and yeah. and access, and that seems like that's what the MA did. Um, I think what the MA did more than anything is it showed me how much I wanted it. I thought it would give me that kind of access. It absolutely didn't. It was three thousand six hundred pounds when I did mine. They're about nine now. Mm. Um, it was a real indication to me that I wanted this very badly. So it was a sort of a line in the sand for me. I thought it was going to be a route into publication. It wasn't a route into publication. I didn't learn nearly enough, not nearly enough. I'm still learning. My learning continued. A few of us started a um, writer's group based on our MA because we hadn't finished and we don't think we'd, we'd heard enough and learnt enough. So we were still educating one another, still are educating one another. And are MAs necessary to get published? No, absolutely not. What they're really good for is for meeting other writers, being in a community. And if you are taught well, they're brilliant for being taught about the craft of writing and having respect for the craft of writing. You know, I believe in them. But I do have a lot of people who can't afford or haven't got the time to do an MA thinking they're at a disadvantage. And I don't believe they are because there's other ways of learning the craft. There's other ways of getting those things. Is that why you donated some of your advance for Leon to your Working Class Writers Fund? Yes, uh, that was a scholarship that I funded a a disadvantaged writer for a year to do an MA in uh, creative writing at Birkbeck, because that one is very well run by Julia Bell. Um, And also, well, when I first started the scholarship, I was determined to call it the Fat Chance Scholarship because I would say to other writers, people I knew, I'd say, look, do an MA in creative writing if you really want to learn the craft, you know. And they'd say, yeah, fat chance. I haven't got three and a half thousand or seven thousand um, pounds. But anyway, we, we called it Kit Devar Scholarship just for publicity reasons. And um, yeah, it's been fantastic to be part of other people's dream. I never did dream of going to university, ever. It was not a dream of mine, like, oh, I wish I could go. Never wanted that. Um, But for some people, universities beyond them uh, for lots and lots of reasons, and it's a dream, and they do feel disadvantaged for not going. So it's just great that someone else, I think it's in its fifth year now. So it's great. I was really interested in the way that you're – you know, at a point we're all supposed to like get invisible and vanish and stop bothering society with our stupid ideas. You've got, you've hit 55, Leon has gone. And all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, because you've been working at it your entire life. You're 60 and you're a figurehead, if you like, for class, race, diversity, just saying it like it is. How's that feel? Um, it's pretty hard to get a boyfriend, put it that way. Um, because, you know, I don't want a man on the downward slide into incontinence knickers. I'm not, in, you know, I've got incontinence God, who does? Exactly. But a lot of men that I've met and, you know, that I've been out with, they are winding down, particularly men. I don't, I think women get a second wind anyway mm. after 50. 
certainly after 55, just like, hang on a minute, I'm now not at the mercy of those hormones that make me in, you know, home focused. And I do believe it's a, it's a hormonal thing where you're nest building, you're nurturing your children if you have them or whatever. And then those hormones go, thank Christ. And you're like, oh, I'm going to act like men act and I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to be who I want to be. I'm going to reclaim some of the power that I've given away over the years or just not taken advantage of. We haven't all given it away. But we have maybe, and and I'm only speaking for women who have had my sort of life journey, um, who have decided, you know, I'm I'm going to have children and maybe I'm going to give up work or work part-time or not do my dream job. And many of us have had to make those compromises. And then you get to 55 and it's like, hello, now what shall I do? And obviously if you're not in a relationship or if you're on your own and you can't have this second career, and many of us can't have a second career, or in my case, a first career, um, then, you know, that power, that energy goes somewhere else. Maybe it goes into causes or friendships or whatever. For me, very fortunate. I've been very, very fortunate that I've been able to channel that energy and that interest into something I absolutely love, which is writing. And I'm I'm a really reluctant activist. <laughs> I was introduced at... at uh, a festival once as Kit Duval, writer and thinker. I was like, thinker? <laughs> I mean, God, don't we all? You know, it's, but, but she was sort of saying activist, and I was like, oh, don't say that. Don't call me an activist. I don't feel like that's something I do. You know, I, I don't say, oh, I'm going to do my writing and now I'm going to do my activism. They're indistingu- indistinguishable to me, and I think I'm just being me. Do you know what I mean? And it's also a responsibility. You know, if someone says, what do you think about Extinction Rebellion? Like, for example, I was I was contacted by Channel 4 after the Brexit vote. And, right, we'd like to interview for Channel 4 News about Brexit. And I went, fuck off. I don't know anything about Brexit. I know I don't like it. I don't know the economics. I don't know the stats. I haven't got anything sensible to say apart from my knee-jerk reaction that it's a wrong thing. And, and so you do have, if you've got any kind of sort of activism label... You do get people asking you to have opinions on the most bizarre things. What do you think about Meghan Markle? I was asked the other day. I haven't got an opinion on Meghan Markle. She's not the first woman that married a bloke and doesn't get on with her in-laws. That's <laughs> that's it. That's my view of Meghan Markle. She loves her husband. He loves her. Maybe. I don't know. I don't care either. Um, so obviously I have an opinion on the things I care about massively. And I try not to have an opinion on things I absolutely know nothing about, nothing about. Love Island, don't know. Uh, and lots of other things, just don't know. And try to keep my mouth shut. Obviously, that's hard for someone like me, but I do try. <laughs> but that's the kind of culture now is that, well, if you've got an opinion on something, then you must have an opinion on everything. Yes, yeah. And on things that you can't possibly know anything about. I haven't... I don't want to have an opinion. I don't want to spend my time and my energy and have that diverted into nonsense. And even if it isn't nonsense, let's say Extinction Rebellion, absolutely great. Are they right to stop traffic on the M25? I don't know. I just don't know. And I'm not going to go there because that's just a diversion of my energy that I want to spend on my friends, on my children, on my writing, and on those little bits of activism. 
that I do believe in. I, you know, like marginalised people having a voice, like children in care, for example. And I heard a great phrase the other day, and it's tend the garden where you stand. And it's like we all stand physically in a certain space, in a certain neighbourhood, but we also stand in a figurative space where, you know, I, I feel I stand in the space where marginalised people live. Um, and I stand with them. And so that's what I'm going to talk about. That's why I don't know anything about Meghan Markle. And there might be other people that will stand in that space. And so to tend the garden where you stand is what I try to do. Try and just contain my energy and spend it where it's of most use and where actually I can talk with some authority. How did you find the ageing process? Because you had so much going on, didn't you, through your 50s and into are you 61? 61, yeah. Oh, not good. I mean, I've never, ever had a problem with saying how old I am or being worried at all about getting older and all that thing. Because when you grow up and you think you're going to be dead at six, 16, every day is a bonus. I still find it shocking that I'm 61. Really, really shocking. But oh, was Armageddon meant to be 1976? 75, 76, around that time. But most definitely, I was never going to leave school. That's what I was told, very certainly. So every day, every, day, every year, every birthday is a bonus. Um, the only birthday that has rocked my world was my 60th. You know, 50, great, wow, fantastic. 40, great, wow. 56, great, because you're still in your 50s. When you get to 60, that really is beige, elasticated trousers. That's a different world. No longer... Can you say you're middle-aged? 60-something is not middle-aged. That's a different category on the tick chart. So have I got a problem with it? Not really, but it has. uh, I'd say it's more affected me being 60 and being single. And I would love to have a relationship, but I don't think that's going to happen. People always say, oh, you go to all these events, you must meet loads of people. No, you don't. No, you don't meet loads of people. You know, and I'm not gay. So and the publishing industry is very, very populated by women. Um, so no, I don't meet loads of people. So that's been an eye opener. I wouldn't say I'm sad about it. I'm not sad about it, but it has, I've definitely had to shift my thinking since I've been 60 into, you know, okay, you're on your own. You're going to be on your own probably. Um, is this good? What about your health? What about, what are you leaving your children? How much longer can I write? And the answer is, doesn't matter what I live my children, they're fine. And I can write for as long as I can type or speak. Um, and it's all good, but it's it has not, that hasn't come overnight. That thinking hasn't come overnight. Because you still don't see loads of older women knocking around doing their thing. I think there are more all the time, but maybe I would think that now I am an older woman. But do you feel that you can look around and see inspiration or not? I think I'm seeing more inspiration. I'm seeing more women on adverts that aren't a size eight. That's great. You know, I'm seeing more visible women who are disabled or who have had difficult lives or who represent the whole range of of female experience. And that's great. That is good. And I get inspiration from that, even if they're younger. But being an older woman for me, It can be, because of where I am in my career, it can be isolating. A lot of my friends are younger because many women, certainly the friends that I had when I was married, you lose touch with them when you're not married. 
you know, there's a, a, a phenomenon I read about in America called when you're a Tuesday friend. You're not a Friday or a Saturday friend when you're divorced. Oh, that's so interesting. You're a Tuesday yeah. friend because Friday, Saturday and Sundays for my husband or my children or whatever. But I've got a single friend that I see on a Tuesday and it's a real phenomenon. It's a real fact that that's what happens. And I've noticed the difference. My husband left when I was 55 and I think I was finally divorced when I was 57. And it's definite thing that me and my single or divorced friends talk about that you know you're the Tuesday date type thing I don't mind that but younger women I think don't have that as much so I I get definitely get inspiration I think younger women are fucking great I really do I mean Jesus Christ say what you want go for what you want say what you think have sex with who you want to be, be who you want to be and I think There's many more younger women with that kick-ass, reclaim-my-power attitude than there are of my generation, Mm. although my generation battled very different things. I mean, we've paved the way in a a lot of ways for younger women to have the space to be that uh, assertive. Uh, And the cost to us has has definitely been a, a loss of power and agency, which, you know, many of us are reclaiming at this end of our lives. I'm going to ask you the questions I always ask okay, now. Great. What's your emotional age? 27. Why 27? I don't know, but me and my daughter, she's 27, and she said, Mom, you've always been 27. And it's just a joke between us. I wouldn't say it's not really 27. I'd say I'm 37, between 37 and 42. Is there anything particular about that age that... Um, no, they weren't good ages for me at all. But when I look at women who are that age, um, the, the women I look up to, for example, some people that are just living their life and sort of being powerful and being there, I feel like, yeah, that's, you know, if I had 37-year-old body and energy, yes, that's about it. Also, I'm very irreverent. Very, very, very irreverent. I really, really encourage people. I do with my children. I remember with my daughter when she was 14 and I said, um, you know, she had a friend. And I said, oh, is, is Sarah coming around today? And she said, yeah. And I said, do you like Sarah? And she said, yeah. I said, you know, you do. You know, you know you can be gay. She said, mom, I'm not gay. I was so intent on giving her the space to be gay or bisexual, whatever she wanted. And she said, mom, you're getting oppressive now. <laughs> <laughs> impressive and also telling my children about them being adopted I'd say to them look this and they go we know mom we know because you keep telling us and I just so didn't want to have secrets for my children and I didn't want them to grow up in any way ashamed or conflicted about being adopted over the top I mean really over the top but yeah I think that's the way I sort of go at things bullying a china shop and I think that's the energy you have in your 20s and 30s. Give us a book recommendation. So it could be something that's been really significant to you with lots of battles, or it could be something you just read really recently that you loved. Okay, I read really recently, I read two books by Claire Keegan, which I'm holding up and I know you can't see. Yeah. One is called Small Things Like These. Which the other is wonderful. One's called Foster. Incredible. Really short. You could read both of them in one day if you don't do anything else and don't go for a wee. They're really, really good. What advice would you give younger women? Keep your friends. You know, good friends are really, really valuable. I'm always suspicious of someone 
I meet that has not got a friend from their 20s. You know, all their friends they met three years ago. I'm like, why is that? And my oldest friend I met when I was five. And she's, I still see her. And then all through my life, I've kept very, maybe only one for each five years or maybe one from each decade. But I've got friends that know me good. They know me. They can call me out on my shit or they can just be there and I don't have to explain. So I'd say keep your friends, make friends, be a good friend and keep your friends close. Who is your old bird role model? Emma Thompson. I like Emma Thompson. She's just quietly subversive. You know, she just says what she thinks. And, yeah, I like Emma Thompson. I like some of the the, the quotes I've read. I've never met her, but I've read some of the things she said, and she seems to have a lot of humanity. It's quiet subversion, your MO. Yes. Oh, my God, absolutely. Chip away at the foundations. While you're screaming at someone, be chipping away at the foundation. So definitely say what needs to be said. Because that's one way and and that you need people to call out the shit in the world. Absolutely. And to be there standing. But then you also need the quieter people who are chipping away quietly at the foundations of all the bollocks that this society is built on. What's your superpower? I have the ability to laugh at anything. And it's really bad. It's both a superpower and a curse. I laugh a lot. I laugh every day. And I laughed every day, even through my grimmest, not quite every day through my grimmest times but I do like to laugh when I was saying my wedding vows I had to make sure my brother was nowhere in my eyesight because I knew I was going to laugh and when I was saying my wedding vows I heard right from the back of the room him go (coughs) and that was it it was was really inappropriate time to laugh I was saying something really quite moving and serious and I just started to laugh it was terrible god it was terrible <laughs> do you think that if that thing with your brother that comes from being a kid and like trying not to laugh when you're being in church you know, oh it's uh, <laughs> it came from church all the time because you'd have these very quite strange people giving very serious talks on like sexual positions or whatever it was <laughs> you could not laugh and of course you want to the more you can't and I used to sometimes pretend I was going to the toilet so I could have a laugh in the toilet and of course you get to the toilet you don't want to laugh you think oh it's gone the minute you sit down again it's it's bad it's so bad and last one how many fucks do you give I'm in the minus category there so I give less than zero fucks about most things and then passionately many fucks about the things I care about about my children obviously and and lots of other things that's brilliant thank you thank you for giving me so much time Kit thank you thanks for the interview it's great and wearing a top that matches your chair as well I know I mean is that intentional no it is not this is just the coolest thing I've got it's quite hot out there and this is a glass room so it gets a little bit too hot so this is very cool thank you for listening You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow, because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash The Shift.